Welcome to the Diversity at Work podcast, where we unpack what it's really going to take to close the gender gap in the workplace. Here is your host, leadership coach and diversity consultant, Andrea Jansen. This episode is sponsored by Duckish Natural Skincare. I am super excited that they have jumped on board to sponsor the show because I actually know Carolyn Crew, the founder, personally. A couple of years ago, before there was a Reignite Your Ambition coaching program, before there was a workshop, before there was an ambitious everyday journal, I had an idea for an exercise to help people get clear on what drives their ambition so that they could set goals, feel fulfilled, and have something to strive for. So before I could do that, I actually had a group of entrepreneurs that I knew, and I asked them if I could test the exercise on them. So I asked Carolyn, what is the something that you're striving for? What drives your ambition? What motivates you to get up every day and go to work? And she said, 2%. And I didn't really expect an answer like that. And I asked her to explain. And she said that only 2% of women entrepreneurs actually reach a million dollars in annual revenue in their businesses. And that is what motivated her to start Duckish Natural Skincare. They have lotion sticks, lip balm, baby products, and bath products. They're really innovative. And my favorite product is their lotion stick. It looks like deodorant, but it's actually lotion. So you just rub it on your legs, you rub it on your arms, your hands, your face. You can even use it as a lip balm. And I love it because it's solid. And when I travel, I can keep it in my carry-on and I don't need to worry about having too much liquid to get through security. And for all of the Diversity at Work listeners, Duckish is offering you 15% off of your order. So you need to head to duckish.ca, that is D-U-C-K-I-S-H dot C-A, and enter the promo code diversity at work at checkout, and you will get 15% off of your order. The way I see it is that if you need to buy lotion anyways, might as well buy it from a women-owned business so that you can do your part to close the gender gap. They ship to the U.S. and Canada, so head to duckish.ca and enter the promo code diversity at work and you will get 15% off. Hi, it's Andrea Jansen here. On today's episode, I sat down with leadership coach and diversity expert, Karen Catlin. She is also an author. She wrote the book, Better Allies. She is a former vice president at Adobe, and she works in Silicon Valley with companies like Airbnb and Salesforce, and she helps them to build up better women leaders, but also helps men figure out how they can be an ally and be that diversity champion. Because let's be honest, women talking about the gender gap with only women is not going to change things. So let's dive into the interview. I'm so excited to share this with you today. So hi, Karen. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. So uh, I have Karen Catlin with me. She's an author. She's a former executive from Silicon Valley and an advocate for diversity in the workplace. So can you start off by introducing yourself and just sharing with everybody listening what you do? Yes. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Andrea. I'm just super excited to be here. And um, yeah, so I am on my second career. And in my 
first career, as you mentioned, I worked in Silicon Valley um, as a uh, just basically building software products. I used to write code for a living and over time moved into executive leadership roles. And most recently, I was a vice president of engineering at Adobe. Um, but that all changed about seven years ago when I decided I wanted to be working full-time on creating more diverse and inclusive workplaces. And I have my own business now as a leadership coach, where I'm primarily focused on helping women as well as members of other underrepresented groups grow their careers, grow their leadership skills, and so forth. Um, and as you mentioned, I'm an author. So I have uh, two books. Uh, my first book was all about public speaking. It's called Present, A Techie's Guide to Public Speaking, because I really want to get more women and people from underrepresented groups sharing their expertise and growing their careers by public speaking. And um, so I wrote that with a, a friend, uh, Pornima Vijay Shanker. And then I now have a second book, which is called Better Allies. And it's all about creating inclusive workplaces through everyday actions that anyone can do. I love it. So that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast, because I know people get overwhelmed when we talk about diversity, especially the gender gap, which I want to focus on today. And it's like, whose job is it, right? It's like, should the government do this? I think HR needs to take it on. I think we're waiting for the law to be passed. Oh, it, the women's group needs to do it. And it's like, you're just frozen and nobody knows what to do. Whether you're a man, woman, any gender, any role, it's like overwhelming. And it's easy to just not do anything and think that someone else has to do it. It's somebody else. It's not my job. So that's why I'm so excited that you wrote this book because it's tangible. And the first part of it really dives into taking action and what you can do as one person to do your part to make the workplace more inclusive, make it better for everybody. So before we dive into that, though, I want to rewind a little bit. And I would love it if you could tell me what was like life like for you before when you were that VP in Adobe? Like what was happening? Yeah. Um, well, life was definitely busy, if, if uh, I can say that. Um, I have two children who are now pretty much launched um, in their early 20s. But um, when I was growing my career, it was definitely a busy time personally because I had you know, two children that I was also raising. And um, so life was definitely busy. That said, um, I feel very uh, fortunate and so forth to have um, had this amazing career. I'm um, working in tech, growing it, and so forth. Um, and um, my specific job, I always loved doing things um, to make the make the whole environment um, more effective, more efficient. Um, so I was always kind of in an engineering services role, um, sort of making sure that we did things as efficiently and effectively as possible across the company. So that, um, I don't know how much detail I should be uh, okay. diving into so here, really but maybe that's good. This, I find this really interesting that you, your initial thought about making the workplace more inclusive was efficiency from a science background. So tell me more about that. Yeah, and I actually wasn't even focused on inclusivity back when I was uh, growing my career initially. It was more about, I just, um, I am someone who loves to simplify things. I'm someone who hates reinventing the wheel. Um, that's my mindset. So I'm always about like, how's what's the best way we can do something and help uh, evolve that over time so that it becomes better the next time we have to do it. And um, 
that definitely ties into the approach I take now with allyship totally. But back then I had no idea, like I did not have the crystal ball that said, I'm going to be doing this allyship work and focus moving forward at all. It just um, kind of organically happened. Um, That said, I will say that when I was still at Adobe, I went to my first Grace Hopper celebration, uh, which is the um, largest, uh, excuse me, the largest conference for women in technical computing roles. And I had my like eyes open to this problem that was gender diversity in the tech industry. And I kind of hadn't noticed that there weren't a lot of women around. Um, there used to be a lot more women when I started my career 25 years earlier, but much less um, as it, as it kind of progressed through history. And I went back after that conference, I went back to Adobe fired up about gender diversity and realized that like as the most senior woman on the engineering side, I had a role to play at my company to support women and support a conversation around gender diversity. So in addition to being a vice president of engineering, I also started our women's employee resource group. I started mentoring and sponsoring women and started just being a vocal advocate for our gender diversity. That then led me to realize I wanted to do that full time and not just at Adobe, but at, across the industry. So I, I took that mindset and knowledge of being very efficient from an engineering uh, services point of view, coupled with this desire to help gender diversity. And that led me to start my coaching practice as well as realize, oh my gosh, we need to basically fix the whole industry and make it more inclusive. How can I simplify doing that? How can I break it down and improve, um, take all the research that's out there, break it down so that people can really take action on it and simplify it, basically simplify the message into everyday actions. So I love it. So one thing I want to ask you about that, you talk in your book about networking and the power of networks. And we know social capital is like one of the things that prevents women from climbing that corporate ladder. So you had a lot of it at Adobe. And I'm really wondering, because you had all that social capital in Adobe, and I'm I'm imagining that that really helped you to get your women's group off the ground, get a budget for it, get people to show up because you were already this influential person. But did that social capital transfer outside when you left? Oh, yeah. Interesting question. Um, um, so it was tough. It was tough for me to leave Adobe. I feel like I had a very good network and reputation within Adobe. And sure, when you work in Silicon Valley, you've probably heard this, that people kind of leave career, leave jobs and move around a lot. It's a very small valley, we say, as opposed to it's a small world. It's a small valley. People are moving around all over the place uh, pretty frequently. So sure, I knew people outside of Adobe, but I didn't really, I hadn't spent time nurturing that external network at all. So when I left Adobe, um, and I write about this in my book, I knew I needed to build my network. My focus was I wanted to help women across the industry. So I started networking like a champ, I thought, um, in terms of going to girl geek dinners and women's meetups, women in tech meetups, and so forth um, to really strengthen my external network. Um, and I will say that being able to, set, to use the phrase, you know, former vice president of engineering at Adobe, that helped. That helped with the social capital. Definitely. It got people's attention, but it couldn't just be only that. I had to follow up with increasing my visibility um, in terms of, um, 
you know, speaking and following up with people and connecting with them on LinkedIn and sending, you know, information or just reaching out to them. I couldn't just rely, you know, kind of on my past laurels of being a VP of engineering. I had to add value to my network moving forward. So I definitely had to do that. But I'll tell you, the one mistake I made, and I share this in the book, is I focused on networking with women. So I was increasing the homogeneity of my network, basically, as opposed to diversifying it. And in hindsight, I wish I had been networking with more of the men who are in positions of power who could recommend me for coaching opportunities, who could hire me to coach their female employees, um, who could introduce me to different opportunities. Um, so, you know, I've, I since I've fixed that, I feel like I've, I've um, uh, realized the error of my ways. But it's, I think, a good cautionary tale to people out there is that um, regardless of our our background, our social standing, and so forth, we all can continue to work to diversify our networks. Um, and there's just so many benefits when we do that. So I love that. So what I am hearing from your story is that you started with women, connecting with women, because those who though, that's who you wanted to impact, you wanted to make the world better for women, then you realized, if I want to make the workplace better for women, <laughs> I need to get the men involved. So <laughs> Yes. And then that led you to kind of this concept of creating allies and really showing people and organizations how to leverage that concept to make the workplace better for everybody. Everybody. So I think I think that's really cool story. So thanks for sharing that. And I want to dive into your book because it is really powerful. Before we started recording, I was just telling Karen, it's actually available for free. Uh, You can get a sample on Amazon on Kindle. And it sucked me in because it started with tangible ways that anybody in any position, any race, gender, whatever can take action. So that's what I loved about it. It sucked me in and then I kept reading. So I want to talk about that now. And at the beginning, this is one of the things that sucked me in. You talked about privilege and there was a checklist that we could go through as readers to understand what privilege we have. So can you explain what that really means? Because it is a loaded topic and people don't like to bring it up ever. Yeah, and it's loaded, I think, because it's so easy for us as individuals to get defensive when someone says, hey, you have so much privilege. It sounds like we never worked a day in our life to get where we are, or we never had to um, to work hard um, to, to accomplish what we've accomplished. Um, and I personally have felt this myself. Um, I remember early on, um, you know, someone saying, well, and I don't remember the details, but some basically someone pointing out the privilege I have, which, yeah, I'm a woman working in tech, which I am the minority, but I'm white. I am cisgendered, which means I am uh, of the gender I was assigned at birth. I am in a stable relationship. I've been married to my partner for 30 years. I have two grown, healthy children. Um, I've been a VP of engineering. Like I have so much privilege and I have a college degree. Um, And that college degree was the one like, you have so much privilege, you have a college degree. And I'm like, wait a second. I don't have privilege because I have a college degree. I worked hard for that. You know, I had to put myself through school. I worked campus jobs. I struggled to get the grades to stay in school. Um, and frankly, I worked hard leading up to college. Like that, that's not privilege. Well, I've learned that since it, since that uh, initial reaction I had, I've learned it is privilege. It's privilege because I was raised in a certain way that allowed me to value um, going to the library when I was younger, 
to read, to the importance of grades. There was a stable family that I was a part of that that honored and, and cherished and encouraged all of that um, and allowed me to do what I needed to do to get to college and to, frankly, to be supported while I was there. Not financially supported, but supported in other ways. And that is such a sense of privilege. Um, so backing up, I think most of us get defensive when our privilege is called out because they're like, we didn't, you know, we worked hard to get where we are. Um, and I, what I try to get convey in my book is that privilege is unearned. It's just how we were born. It's something that is environmental around us. Um, and it's just a fact of life. And not everyone has the same privileges as other people. And so in my book, as you mentioned, I have a list of 50 ways you might have more privilege than your coworker. Um, and so really thinking about the people next to you, um, in, you know, whether it's in, in cubes next to you and work groups and the company overall, how you might have privilege, even if you feel like you are in the minority, like myself, like being a woman working in tech. Um, and some of these privileges, I, I spent time looking through, many other people have lists. I spent time like curating from other people's lists, as well as my own experience about the interviews I was doing with people about privilege to come up with this list specifically about the workplace. And so, um, and some of the things that are surprising to me as, or were surprising as I collected this list are things about, for example, economic privilege. You know, tech is a very well-paying industry, yet there are people who are still, um, for example, sending money home to their parents every paycheck, even though they're working in tech and have this great thing. You, you, you would assume like, of course, they can afford to go um, go out for drinks after work or get together for like whitewater rafting on the weekend. Of course, we all can afford this because we work in tech. Not everyone can, whether they're sending money home, have student loan debt, um, or frankly, are you know perhaps um, supporting a whole family on, on a smaller uh, paycheck or on, on their paycheck. So like, the financial privilege that some of us have by not having to worry about um, living paycheck to paycheck is, is incredible. Um, and I don't know uh, if I'll, I'll throw it back to you, Andrea, just was there anything that was surprising to you as you looked at that list that you think, learned about your own privilege or just surprising to see there? I think for me, it was like, it brought to mind this thought of if I can own it first, then nobody else can point it out to me. And I found that (laughs) empowering because I could be like, yeah, like I was going through, there's some other things that I have. uh, Like I have a university education, a master's degree as well. I went to coaching school. I I have a lot of privilege and I feel like I already knew that, but there was some of them that was like, okay, I don't need to hide this. I can own the fact that I do have privilege, but then the question becomes, what do I do with that privilege? And then that's where it got hard. So I thought, I felt it was really empowering to just go through the list and be like, yeah, I'm going to own that. So that is part of who I am and not be ashamed of it. And I think that was the biggest kind of, aha, the biggest takeaway for me. Love that. Um, thank you for sharing that. That's, um, that makes me just very happy to hear. Um, and I think it's fine to feel like you want to get ahead of it and own it, as you said. Um, and hopefully the rest of the book was helpful in terms of how you can then take the privilege that you've now acknowledged and owned to think about supporting people who don't have the same privileges as you. Totally. And so 
One yeah. thing that as I was reading your book, what came up for me the most, and I didn't know how to navigate this because we talk about organizational culture and fit. And when you talk about hiring and promoting, oh, fit is so important. That is like the number one thing ingrained in my mind <laughs> about people and work. And a lot of the times we look at the culture and you want that fit, but we, we, immediately go for people who are similar than us because it's easy to work with them. And that's how we judge fit because it's very intangible and it's based on our gut. And so I was curious, how do you differentiate like culture and being exclusive and how do you focus on the values of the company and want and make sure everyone is the right fit, but also be diverse and not kind of single yeah. vision tunnel? Cause I find that really hard. Yeah. So two things here. The first is um, the trap we often fall into and it comes out, you can hear it. The trap is, well, would you want to go get a beer with them? You know, that's like a classic like test in terms of culture fit. Um, would you want to go get a beer with them? Would you imagine, can you imagine hanging out with them after work is the thing. Uh, another phrase that I've heard people use um, is, um, well, it's the airport layover test. Like would, if you got stuck in an airport on a long layover with this coworker, would, would you enjoy it? And um, so those to me are red flags. Um, those are red flags in the hiring process because that's exactly what you were talking about. That is the, the test of, do I like them? Are they like me? Are they like the people I tend to hang out with? Um, and would I enjoy spending time with them? Um, better is to do um, what is, testing people against the values of the company and be objective about that. So company values, um, whatever they are, five, six, seven things, um, figure out how you are going to evaluate candidates on how they um, have demonstrated these values in the past or have the potential to demonstrate them moving forward. Um, that's much more important to figure out the interview questions to ask and to objectively evaluate them on the company values. Um, so that's one, one thing. The second thing I want to mention is to also flip it a little bit on its head. And as part of the debrief of any interview process is ask not would they be a culture fit or a values fit, but what would they add to the culture that we don't currently have? What's the perspective they bring, the background they bring? How can they be a culture add versus a culture fit? And I think that is a great way to open up the mindset in terms of valuing people who are different. And hopefully that will bring the more, you know, bring more candidates um, into your company that way. That's cool. Can I ask you a question about my business? Yeah. Okay. So I am growing and I'm bringing people on board and I have had some not successful um, situations. And I've learned that in order for people to be successful working with me and for it to work out, they need to have the mindset. It's all about the mindset. And I guess maybe that would be my values, which are abundance and believing in potential, getting curious, trying things and failing. Um, those are really the things that you need to be. Those are pretty much my values. And so okay. work with me, that needs to happen. Um, but it's interesting because I found it really hard to find people. And I think where I made the mistake is was I looked for the technical skills and I didn't really think about the value because you know, I'm like, I want to give everybody a chance, all right. of that. And it, it didn't work out in some cases. Yeah. And yeah. I have someone now 
um, brand new social media manager, and she just started. And the mindset is there. It, she's learning as she going. She's learning as she goes, and it's working out really well. So, can you dissect that and how? I guess you could just help me. Like, how do I take that and turn it into like a policy or a way of working? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, have you articulated? the values that you just articulated so well right here. Um, have you articulated that to your employees? Have you put that in your job descriptions? Have you had it as some part, part of an onboarding process where you talk about why these things are important and examples of seeing them in action? So I do now. I, I did <laughs> not before because I was like, this is the technical thing that I need you to do. And like, you have all this experience, like you've proven that you've done it before. So yeah, I, I did it. So I'm doing it now. Cause I think I learned the hard way. Yeah. So and I think, and I would encourage you, sorry to cut you off there. I'd encourage you also to think about behavioral interview questions. You can ask for the next person you need to hire so that you can have them give examples of when they've demonstrated the different values that are important to you. And I love it. You can then assess. Yeah. This person has, a growth mindset. This person does learn as they, as they go. Um, they've demonstrated over and over again. I have full confidence. They'll do it when they join my firm. Okay. I love that. So how can people in a big company do that? Because yeah. it's easy when it's me, like, cause I'm in charge, right? I could just start tomorrow, but in a big company, it's not that easy. True. Um, so in a really large company, oh my gosh, I would hope that they were doing this at a you know, systemic level and systemic level being, um, I, I, I was coaching a woman who was, it's so interesting. She was interviewing for an internal position and I was helping her identify and just think about some of the questions she might get as part of this internal interview. Um, so that she could be prepared. And she said, Oh, I can just look up the 300 interview questions that um, corporate has recommended we ask during any interview and identify the ones that I think are applicable to this role. So large companies have systems in place where there might be pre, uh, recommended questions to be asking to test the values. And if not, that's an ally move. Start creating them for the next interview panel that you're on and get buy-in just from your small interview group and see if that can't be propagated throughout the company. Um, because it's effective and it's working and give you a chance to show some thought leadership around, let's start asking these kind of questions to test behavioral, um, you know, uh, background and value fit. Okay, I love it. So really focus on getting clear on what the values are. And if you don't know what they are at your company, because that happens, <laughs> yeah, um, true. get curious. And then if you can't find them, I guess, do you just kind of go with your team and like figure out, okay, these are the values on my on this team. And let's yeah. It asks questions around them. Yes. And I'll say, Andrew, too, that one of the biggest mistakes you can make with any interview process is not having agreement ahead of time about how you're going to objectively evaluate candidates. And so a piece of that will definitely be values. It should be. And also um, then the technical skills you're actually looking for. But if you do not have that agreement ahead of time of here's what we're looking for, here's how we're going to assess it, here's how we're going to objectively evaluate the candidates, that's when bias creeps in. That's when it's like, I just have this feeling. I just feel that this person's going to be great. Um, I think they're going to be successful. Um, they, they just feel it's a good fit. You know, it's just like bias will creep in without that objective criteria. So, so you got to like, start. 
if you're already down that road though, right? You're, you're kind of deep in, you're down to the couple oh. too. So is it just about getting curious? Like, okay, what is my gut telling me? Like, let's explore and figure out what it is that makes this person be awesome. Or is that going down the road of bias again? Like kind of like in the back end trying to. Yeah, I think so. I, I really recommend the uh, setting up the objective criteria ahead of time and figuring out how you're going to evaluate people. So you, you do it consistently. So um, yeah, it sounds so simple. I know. <laughs> right. And like, I didn't do it. Right. So I didn't yep. do it. Um, I'm sure a lot of other people are not doing it. So what's a good reminder to like, start doing this? Uh, a good reminder. So <laughs> um, I want to say, you know, it, it depends on how your whole process is for hiring people. So if, um, and if how, like for a small firm, are you someone who uses checklists so that you do things the same way every time? Or, and if not, do you need to start just a small checklist of when I need to hire the next person? Step one, write the job description. Step two, uh, figure out the questions I'm going to be evaluating people on. Step three, you know, so forth. Um, and um, that might be the reminder. I don't, I don't know. I think it depends on uh, the process that's already in place about where the reminder needs to be okay. um, inserted and so forth. And I will tell you though, even though this is hard and it seems a little overwhelming, I know I'm making it sound like, of course, just do it. It's going to be easy. I know, I know I'm making it sound so simple. Just do these things, set up the objective criteria, evaluate everyone the same. I know I'm making it sound like it's so simple and it's not. I acknowledge that. Yet, I will tell you that I coach people in companies in Silicon Valley that follow this process. Um, it is something that is system-wide, company-wide. They are set up for success. And is it perfect? Probably not. But it's following the best practices and it is eliminating some of the bias, if not all of the bias, from the interview process. And I also think it's scalable too, right? If it's just like a personal thing that you like, like a reminder, if you need a personal reminder, it's not scalable. Cause like you said, every person is different and they're going to need a different reminder to check their bias. So having a process that has those built in steps that maybe it's a little bit annoying that you have to do this, but it actually, it saves time down the road. So you don't have to backtrack and you know, you're like, I'm taking action so that I am objective. And at the end of the day, you get the best candidate. That's what it's yes. for, right? Yes. Yep. And chances are the candidate has a better experience during the interview process. They're being asked these really um, good questions about their their past, their experience, and getting a good sense of what's valued by the company so that they can assess whether they're going to be Ooh, successful there. That is a truth bomb. The company's <laughs> values, because it's also about attracting the talent, right? So if you show mm -hmm. up and the way the person is ex being experienced, they feel like their opinion's valued, they feel like they're being treated fairly, they feel like they can like show up as themselves, it'll make them want to work there. Versus right. if they feel like they got to do the extra work to showcase what they have to offer, it's not, it's going to be like, okay, what's it going to be like when I'm working there? Right. So exactly. Yes. It's like a recruitment the other way. It's a technique like it goes both ways. I love yes. that. So I'm curious because I know like within companies and we know there's not, there's fewer women in senior leadership positions than there are men. And I know what we talked about social capital at the beginning, like social capital networks kind of, a lot of these decisions for who gets put in those senior level positions internally or even externally happen outside of the process. So how do we bring this 
into that because that's where we're going to get the big impact is getting more women into those senior roles. I know this is, yes, it's a good question. And frankly, anytime a senior leader is brought into a company, they are going to want to bring in their like, you know, inner circle, their, their own guard, the people that they know and trust that have worked, they've worked with in the past. Um, It happens. Um, I think we need to acknowledge that. That said, can checks and balances be put in place? Yes. Um, so classic example is from the NFL, the National Football League and the States. And years ago, they adopted this thing called the Rooney Rule. And the Rooney Rule was basically saying for any leadership role that any of the teams open, they need to interview at least one man, excuse me, a, a, at least one woman, and I believe even one person of color. Um, and by putting that goal in place. If you have to just at least interview one of these people um, that aren't like the norm, that aren't in the uh, majority, they ended up with more diversity. Um, So while a senior leader may say, I just want to bring this person on board, maybe some checks and balances in terms of, hey, I think we should consider some internal candidates or some at least a diverse slate of candidates before you make your final decision. I think that NFL example is really powerful because when you were originally telling it, my mind went to, oh, it's just a fake check and balance that they're doing. And they're just going to go back and hire that person that they wanted anyways. But if the evidence is showing that it works, it is like, keep doing it because it's working. I think that is really cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay, so my next question is, I want to talk about what individuals can do as a one person working in a big company or working in a small company, wherever you're at, junior level to senior level, um, you describe allies and what that is. So can we take a step back and talk about what an ally is and what their role is in creating a diverse workplace? Yeah, yeah. So an ally you know, the definition that I like to go to is someone who uses their position of privilege, the power they have to create a more inclusive environment where everyone basically can end up thriving. And so in my book, I I went through different kinds of allyship, different examples, different labels I put on allyship, because it really is pretty broad. It's a spectrum. And you don't have to be an ally in absolutely all of these, but perhaps one or two that you feel resonate with with your personality and with what your company or, or team needs. Um, so there are definitely people like sponsors. So sponsors are people who have a lot of social capital and they boost the reputation of other people. Um, they recommend people for stretch assignments as they hear about them or new opportunities at the company. Um, they know people um, from underrepresented groups well enough to know about their goals, their career goals, and they can share those career goals in meetings that they happen to be in. Basically, they're talking about people potentially when they're not even in the room, right? Those underrepresented people aren't even in the room. Um, My favorite story of this is when I was on the receiving end of this kind of um, sponsorship. And I um, I had recently joined Adobe. I was in a senior engineering leadership meeting, and I heard my new boss who was a senior vice president, I heard him say, well, you know, what I learned from Karen is the following. And then what he went on to say, I had never told him exactly. I had said something similar 
in a one-on-one we'd had earlier that week. But what he did was take something I shared with him, rephrase it into the strategic language of the company, which helped me learn how to be more strategic myself in the language that was going to um, command attention. And he gave me credit. He learned, the senior, highly respected VP of, senior vice president of engineering learned something from me, the new hire, right? So he boosted my credibility with my peers. He made me feel great. And he taught me how to speak more strategically, um, all in that one or two sentences that he shared. And so I think that's a classic example that I um, think anyone can do, whether you are a senior vice president or just someone on a team. You can say, you know, what I learned from Willie is the following and talk about what um, you, what some knowledge or approach or something you learn from someone who's from an underrepresented group um, and give them that kind of boost. Use, use that kind of um, standing you have to sponsor them in that That's way. That's cool because everybody, I'm just thinking in a meeting, even if it's your peer or even a more junior person, if more people are talking about the idea and it's a good idea, the likelihood that people, it will get bought in is if just bringing it up. So having like the hearing it multiple times and kind of putting the credit back to the person who deserves it is so simple. And anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. In fact, and I'll just share with you a quick side note here. I was speaking about my book yesterday at a tech company in San Francisco, and I did share this story. Later on during the Q&A, Someone asked a question. They said, you know, what I learned from my colleague, Cody, and then they went on to say something. And of course, everybody laughed because they heard her demonstrate this allyship of giving this other person credit in the course of asking her question. I loved it. Oh, that's amazing, right? It's like you take action right away. So at the end, I'm going to give you to give some, give the, everyone listening an action. So keep listening and there will be a truth bomb at the end that Karen's going to give you to okay. to at work. Um, but I know in your book, you talk about different roles allies can play. So yeah. you just talked about sponsorship um, and there's a whole bunch. So I'd love it if you could go through all of them and just quickly describe what they are in one second, because these actions are so approachable, easy, because sponsorship is, I feel like it's, I teach about sponsorship as well. It's super powerful. Um, but sometimes it becomes a little bit like intimidating that idea. So let's talk about some of the other ones. So a champion. So what does a champion do? Yeah. So a champion is like a sponsor, but probably in more public venues. Um, the example I give in my book is a man who was on a panel at a conference and it was all men on this panel. And a woman in the audience asked a question about gender diversity in the industry, something like that. And these men were all trying to answer blah, blah, blah. And one guy ended up realizing like, wait a second, what are we doing here? We're all men trying to answer um, questions about gender diversity. And he ended up giving his seat to the woman who asked the question. Can you come up and take my seat on this panel and be a part of this conversation as opposed to all of us men trying to do it? Um, so that's a great example of being a champion. In a, it's like sponsoring in a very public venue. Um, perhaps it is um, all more tangible here because we don't all speak at conferences, but um, it's in a meeting and realizing that there's some somebody with some subject matter expertise who's not being tapped. So there's some conversation about something. And as a champion, you can say, hey, I think we should ask Andrea about this. She, she's written about it. She has expertise in it. I was talking to her last week. I know she, she has. And you just haven't 
been like people are just ignoring you as part of that conversation. Um, so that's an example of a champion. Um, should I move on to amplifier? Yeah, so let's one? talk about amplifier. Yeah, so amplifier, um, and some of these are similar, but amplifier is someone who makes sure that women as well as others from underrepresented groups, that their voices are heard. Um, so perhaps, and again, the example I give in the book is someone who made sure there was a code of conduct for meetings at their company because their meeting culture had become something full of interruptions and people talking over each other and yelling. And so by getting agreement on a code of conduct that was going to eliminate some of that toxic behavior allowed everyone to participate better in the meeting. Um, another example of being an amplifier is, um, you know, if you're organizing an all hands meeting or something like that at your company is inviting people from underrepresented groups to speak at it as opposed to maybe just your buddies um, or the, the people who tend to always speak. Um, so and then putting people on the agenda. So if you're having a meeting and you're like, okay, this is like the topic we're going to talk about today. And you know, there's someone that has that expertise, but they don't always speak up or they're underrepresented yeah. and their voice is not really heard. You put them on the agenda so that they're there and then people are forced to listen and they're supposed to force to speak up would that be yes. yeah exactly hey that's yeah, so simple i love it or yeah. even as a personal if you're chairing the meeting a personal note if you don't make that formal agenda just be like i just need to remember to ask yeah lisa to say whatever right. about this topic because i feel like that's valuable and just doing that on your own Yes. Um, yes, I love that. And I'll mention too, especially f to be inclusive of people who are more introverted and tend to need time to prepare thoughts and get comfortable with um, sharing their, their perspective is giving Lisa a heads up ahead of time of like, I'd like you to speak about this at the meeting. Um, so giving it's, it's, it's a way of being inclusive to introverts. Oh, I love that way. Cause introverts could be like any, they could look any way. And I yeah. don't know if you could tell, but I'm pretty extroverted. So I can talk. If someone asks me, uh, I could go up on a microphone and start talking, no problem. Yeah. But I know not everybody feels that way. And that's yeah. that awareness that I need. <laughs> because yeah, there you go. <laughs> not everybody is like me. And so thank you for that. That is a really great one that I'm going to apply um, Good. Thank for myself because yeah. I need that one. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the advocate because that's similar to sponsorship as well. But what yeah. does an advocate do? Yeah. So advocate, the way I like to think of that is bringing them, bringing people from underrepresented groups into your exclusive circles, the circles like your network or other um, ex like exclusive meetings. Um, the example in the book is when uh, Susan Wojcicki, who's the CEO of YouTube, was realized she was left out of an invitation for a CEO meeting with all of her peers in the industry, and she wasn't on the list. And she ended up mentioning this to um, Bill Campbell, who... Um, very influential man in Silicon Valley. He has since passed away, unfortunately, but he realized this problem and he's like, this isn't right. He used his social capital as an advocate to make sure she got an invitation to the meeting. Um, and it really probably was one phone call or an email from him. It wasn't a big deal, but he did it. Um, more um, tangible maybe for most of us is if we're, if we're invited to um, write a blog post, maybe we invite someone who's an underrepresented person to co-author it with us. So we bring them into this exclusive circle of authorship that we've been invited to, to be in um, or have someone co-present with us on stage at an all hands meeting or a conference or a panel or something like that. Um, 
And of course, invite people along if there are networking events that you're going to that you think they could benefit from. Again, that exclusivity. So that's what um, an advocate really, really does is bring them into exclusive circles. So it's like, oh, we got the box at the hockey game. We're I'm in Canada. We got the box at the hockey game on Saturday. We got all the important people there. Hey, why don't you come? Love that. Love that. Yes. <laughs> okay. So that's simple and that's easy. It's probably going to be more fun too, right? Because you're mixing it up <laughs> on Saturday night at the hockey game. So I love that one. Yes. Um, so I have a question because you talk about co-authoring, you talk about bringing someone on stage to speaking, but I, I've heard the term mansplaining before. Yeah. Sure. You've probably heard it. Where is the line here and how, because I feel like this could be seen as that. So how yeah. do we navigate that? I, I think it can, it, it, it can almost be seen as the opposite of mansplaining. Instead of writing an article or speaking in public about something as though you have all the expertise in the world, you're bringing someone with that expertise to, to explain it in their own words. So I, I feel like it could be the anecdote to mansplaining. <laughs> okay, so mansplaining is like you like the man who like the man like gathers all the ideas and then goes and does the presentation by himself or gets all the input from his team and then does the presentation by himself and takes all the credit. Whereas being an advocate is like, Hey, my team is here and this person is the expert and they're going to do yeah. this part of it. Yes. Yeah. So that's the I, difference. Absolutely. And I must admit mansplaining happens in more everyday kind of settings as well, where um, just some, some guy, and it tends to be men. That's why it's called mansplaining. But anyway, um, somebody will just start talking as though they will talk on behalf of someone else, almost like a parent talking on behalf of their shy child or something. Um, and when it happens in a professional setting among peers or in professional situations, it seems so condescending that somebody just you know starts speaking as though they have all the expertise and they are totally ignorant of the someone in the room having more expertise than them and are just like, I, I feel like when you see it in action, it's almost like they're putting their foot in their mouth. Like they have no idea. Um, <laughs> it's sort of amusing to watch, um, but it's not inclusive. And that's why we should be on the lookout for that and okay. to, to stomp it out. Yeah. Okay. So now let's talk about the scholar. The scholar. Yeah. So scholars, and I hope all allies uh, are trying to be scholars as well, but the scholar specifically spends time learning about the experience of women, underrepresented people. Um, and they do this by perhaps going to women's events or events for um, like the lesbians in tech movement or um, other groups that they are not naturally a part of because they want to learn. They want to learn about the experiences firsthand and they go to these events. They spend their time, their evenings, their, their, um, uh, their time going to events. Um, and of course, before going to any event that you're not really the target audience for, you should ask permission. Like, can I come to as an ally to your event? Um, and many of these events are open to allies and they're very welcoming for people to come. Some aren't. And so you have to respect that. But when they are open, you spend time going to educate yourself. You spend time reading um, articles, doing Google searches to learn about these challenges. Um, and with um, colleagues, you spend time trying to understand what their experience is like as well. Maybe asking them firsthand, I want to learn more about how I can support you better. Are there examples of things I've done or examples of things that are challenging for you here? 
Um, so you spend time learning. That's what the scholar does. I learn about so other people's experiences. Be curious and start where you're ready, right? So if you're just ready to pick up a book or read an article, go with that. When you're ready to go to that event, you go to yeah. that. When you're ready to have that conversation, you wherever you just start wherever you're at. Yes. Listen to this podcast. Start yeah. with your book, right? That would be a great way for people to get started. Okay, so there's two more. So the upstander. The upstander, yeah. So the upstander is the opposite of a bystander. A bystander is someone who has this mindset of maybe they see something happen and they don't really take action. Someone else is going to do this, or I don't feel comfortable pointing out this behavior. It's the the everyday kind of times this comes up is you hear a joke that maybe is a little racist or sexist, and you just sort of smile and nod as opposed to calling it out. Even if no one in the room is personally offended by that joke or that comment, you still just don't even say anything. By contrast, the upstander says something. So they point out, hey, you know, we don't we don't tell sexist jokes here, you know, or it's not cool. Or even questioning, it's like if, if someone's making some uh, comment about, let's say, an older worker, like older workers are so set in their ways, they never want to learn new things. Just calling it out and saying, hey, you know, why exactly do you say that? And having them be forced to confront their own biases and maybe explore the situation. So the upstander stands up for people who um, are from underrepresented groups, even if they're not in the room. I love that. And I remember in Psych 101 in first year university, learning about the bystander effect and being, it's like something that I carry with me all the time. Every time I see something bad happening, like, I'm like, what can I do? I need to do something because you know what? I can't rely on other people (laughs) to do it because that's just human nature, right? It's like, oh, we've always said like, so kind of being that uh, upstander and being like, you know what? Like acknowledge the bystander effect is a thing. Yeah. And so most people are not going to say anything and just like having that courage to do something. Yeah. And I love it. And again, I, the way we're talking about it, this is the easiest thing in the world. I know it's not. Yeah. Personally, um, just about two months ago, I was taking a train and on the train platform, there was someone who was using the N-word. I'm not going to say it out loud, but the N-word. And I was looking around to see who they were aiming it at. And I saw the person and I was like, I don't think I feel comfortable saying anything because the person who is spouting the N-word seems like they are a little bit uh, maybe on drugs. They they didn't just seem quite normal, I'll call it. And I did not feel comfortable approaching them and telling them not to do it. So I get like, sometimes there's situations where you don't feel safe being the, the upstander. That's fine. I acknowledge that. But there's so many things in our workplaces that there's no reason you can't feel safe doing this. Yeah, totally. Because it's even like, oh, we're going to the strip club for lunch. I think you put this in your book and being like, um... No, I don't think everybody's going to want to go there and like make a joke about it even, right? <laughs> or like, yeah. or would you want to bring your daughter there for lunch? Like, <laughs> I don't, oh my gosh, the strip clubs. Um, it, I keep hearing stories about strip clubs. I can't, anyway, yes, we, let's not get started. Yeah, on let's that. not go there, but it's just like saying like, oh yeah. Or even a sports bar, right? I was like, oh, we're going to go watch the game together after work. And then it's like, oh, well, are all the people, do all the people on our yeah. team want to go watch the game? And right. Right. And right. we invite them like, oh, maybe there's another place we could go. Or maybe we just invite them or you can make that assumption that they don't want to come. Right. Because right. you don't think yeah. that. So it's just like including and being like taking action to be like, okay, 
let's stand up for people. Yeah. Yeah. And with that example, I think a, an upstander might say, well, it's great. We're going to go watch the game um, this week, but not everyone likes to watch the games or go to sports bars. So next Friday, why don't we play mini golf or go to a movie mm-hmm. together or something else like that, you know, as opposed to just saying we can't do that. Look for ways of being a, an upstander in terms of being more inclusive the next time the team is getting together. Yeah, totally. Uh, okay. So the last one is the confidant. <laughs> Yeah. So this is such an important ally skill to be that confidant, which means listening to someone's experiences and not discounting them, not saying, no, that person can't possibly, that person did not mean to be sexist. They, you know, I've never seen them be sexist, for example. And And it's so tempting to do this, to assume good intent, to assume people are wonderful people. But when we hear stories when they're not wonderful, our first reaction can be, oh, I'm going to support that other person. They couldn't have possibly meant to offend you. And so by contrast, the confidant is someone who is open to hearing about these things and learning from the experience, asking questions to better understand it, being a little curious about the experience so that they can have a better understanding of the challenges that person's facing. Um, yeah. I love it. So it's like, start with empathy, start with understanding, start with yeah. curiosity and then yeah, figure out at the end of the day, what can I do about it? Right. Exactly. Go back to those others. Like, do I need to be the upstander next time? Or do I need to figure something out? Like look out for it next time and just be aware and then address it later or whatever. Maybe you need to address it right now, but it's just like, figuring out that curiosity and being like, what is my role? How can I be an ally in this situation? Yeah, exactly. So I have, cause this all sounds great. So I want to talk about in your book, you talk about the difference between knights and allies. And this was on a Twitter post that you said, you posted on Twitter that you're writing this book and people were, were like, I don't need this. I can do this on my own. I don't want to be like a charity case. Yeah, yeah. And then you yeah. kind of framed it like you there's knight like behavior and there's ally like behavior. So can you explain the difference? Yes. Um and actually and this was in response to an article I wrote for an open source community. It got posted on their um blog and the reaction I got were from many people were like, I don't need no stinking allyship, I'm fine. Um and I don't need someone to be riding in on their white horse and saving me. I, you know, go away. So it made me really take stock and think about this deeply. Um, And what I wrote in the book is what I see is the difference of knights versus allies. And I give examples. Um, So to break it down, a knight is someone who is saving one person, saving one person from, um, you know, whatever the challenge might be that they're facing. By contrast, allies are ideally looking for systemic solutions to problems. Yeah, they can take one-off kinds of things to help someone in that meeting or in that hiring decision-making conversation, but they should really be looking for systemic change that will benefit people more broadly. So example, and, and I share this in the book, is, you know, in interview debrief meeting, People may be saying, I just don't think he's a culture fit, whatever. And then the knight might say, no, I really think this person's good. And in fact, I will personally mentor them when they're here so that they are successful. So that sounds wonderful. And I love it. But the ally compared to that knight move, the knight move saving just that one person, the ally would do that and say, 
you know, we need to start having objective criteria to evaluate candidates ahead of time so that we don't get into this conversation of, I just don't think they're going to be a fit. Okay. It goes back to that process you talked about it at the is. beginning, yep. right? It's like, yep. when you, it's like, okay, now what I did this in the moment because you know what, everybody's not, nobody's perfect, right? This is the situation I'm going to step in right now. But then it's like a now what? So holding yourself accountable to say now what? Now what? I love that. Yeah. And another example to to broaden it is um, imagine being a manager and noticing that someone on your team, probably a woman, is severely underpaid because she just didn't negotiate her job offer when she she took the role. A, A night, and again, it's not a bad behavior, but a night would just fix that salary for that one person. The ally would do that and look for um, how they can encourage a salary review for the whole company, the whole division, the whole team, whatever it might be. Not just save the one person, help the one person, but look for a systemic change that can happen. Yeah. And do that salary review periodically moving forward. And every time you acquire a new company, you know, it's like look at it more holistically of how you can make sure that everyone has equitable salaries moving forward. So the now what is, I think is a good tool for people. It's like, okay, I've seen the situation in the moment. I can do something about it. I can be an upstander. I can take action. I can do it for this one person. And then now what? what? I love the way you framed that. Yes, exactly. It could be for every situation it works. Yeah. And Andrea, I just want to say one more thing about knights and allies. Um, I actually questioned myself as I was writing the book of whether I wanted to include that chapter. Because to me, all of us, I'm like trying to make it so easy. Everyday actions, people can take action every day to be a better ally. Um, and I didn't want to complicate it. I didn't want people to pull back from doing those everyday actions by thinking, oh my gosh, and now I have to look for systemic change as well. Um, at the end of the day, I decided to include the chapter because I think it's an important conversation. But I want to leave your listeners with this um, good feeling that they can still take the one-offs, those those one-off things that um, in the moment and take those everyday actions and just encourage them to also start looking for the systemic things they could do. I think also when now what, when you talk about that, oh, I realize there's someone on my team that's not being paid the same. I'm going to fix that. And then now what, I think the way you frame it, you are talking about it is like, I'm going to take on in this giant company, the gender pay gap. I don't know if the now what needs to be that big. Maybe the now what is just, oh, I'm going to talk to the next time I am talking with my director or my VP or whoever more influential, I'm just going to bring them into the conversation. And then that's what keeps going. So I think it's yes. the now what is like, how do I influence that systemic change? Because maybe you're not in a position that has the power to say, we're going to do a whole salary review of the whole company. It's right. a, I'm just going to start. And that's the now what, because then that next person will be like, okay, what's my action right now? And then they'll do it. Perfect. And then it just yes. keeps going. And then those are, that's when the small actions become bigger. But I think the the idea of the ally is like a, we're working towards something better for everybody, not just right now in the moment. And yeah. framing it that way makes it easier for people to digest. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Love it. Okay. You're welcome. Uh, okay. So one last thing. I always want people to take action within 24 hours after they learn something new. Because if you if you don't take action right away, like let's be honest, you're never going to take action. You're going to get all stuck in your head and you're not going to do anything. So what can people do in the next 24 hours to start being a better LA? Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's so many things. Um, you I'm have to choose to, one. You have, have to, to choose one. I have to choose one. I am going to um, 
leave your listeners with something they can do in the next meeting they are in. Because I bet they're all going to be in a meeting very soon, within 24 hours. And to observe the dynamics just around are people getting interrupted. And if they notice someone getting interrupted, use this phrase. Hey, I, excuse me, I'd like to hear so-and-so finish their thought. That's all. I'd like to hear so-and-so finish their thought and redirect the conversation back to the person who was interrupted. That's the one thing, the challenge I will leave your listeners. I love it. So just notice when people are being interrupted and then let them speak, create that opportunity for them to speak. I love it. So thank you so much for this interview, Karen. This is so valuable. And I would love it if you could just tell me where do we find you? Where do we get your book? Yes. So I uh, recommend people go to betterallies.com. It has information about the book and how to order it, um, whether you want to just go over to Amazon and get it or you want to do a bulk order for your whole team. Um, uh, that's available there, too. I also will let you know that on betterallies.com, there is a place that you can sign up for my weekly newsletter. I send it out every Friday. It's called Five Ally Actions. And it's basically things I've collected from the week, during the week, different things that have been posted in news, new research that's come out, just trends I've seen on Twitter, whatever it might be, just so that people get a little sprinkling of additional ideas that they can um, bring into their workplace. Um, so all of that is on betterallies.com. I'm very active on Twitter, at Better Allies, and on Instagram as well, at Better Allies. So um, hopefully your listeners will check out my book, or at least follow me on social media if um, they don't have the means to get the book right now. Yeah, I, I'll put the I'll put the information in the show description. So thank you so much for coming, Karen. This is so amazing. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation, Andrea, and stay in touch. Yeah, definitely. Before you go, I wanted to tell you about my brand new Ambitious Everyday Journal. It's actually a PDF and it is totally free. And it's a process that you can do over nine days that will help you figure out what ambition means to you and help you set goals that are aligned with your ambition so that you can feel fulfilled. You can feel like you want to do the work to make those goals happen. And this is actually the same process that I walk all of my clients through. So you know those clients that are bringing in $25 million deals for their company, clients that are going out and negotiating themselves $15,000 raises, this is where they all started in this exercise that I call What Drives Your Ambition? So if you want to get your hands on that, head to andreajansen.com forward slash journal and grab yours today. Hey, if you're still listening to the podcast, if you've made it this far, I would probably assume that you're getting some value out of these weekly podcasts. And I would like to ask you a favor. If you could take a minute to give me a review on iTunes. So click on the podcast, give me some comments, give me some feedback, because that helps spread the word about the Diversity at Work podcast, and it helps to build more diversity champions and get people learning, get people curious about what it's really going to take to close the gender gap. And after you've done that, if you still have some time, you could take a screenshot of the podcast and post it in your social media. That can help spread the word as well. Thank you so much.